Welcome to the Talking Ink Seren Poetry Festival episodes. I'm Lucy Smith. I just want people to think about uh, what's around them. Question, always question. In February 2020, I had the wonderful opportunity to interview eight poets, both emerging and established voices, at the festival venue, the Temple of Peace in Cardiff. In this episode, I meet André Mangeau, whose new collection, Blood Rain, has recently been published by Seren Books. The book is not mine now. The book was launched yesterday, it came out yesterday, and now it's, uh, it's gone. It's the world's, it's, it's the world's <laughs> and it's everybody else's to make up it what they will. We chat about how poetry can make us think for ourselves, about the growing need to be aware of what's happening around us, and the art of transforming words into poems. Okay, this poem's called Bellwether, without an A. And weather, in that sense, is a male sheep, often wearing a bell that leads the flock. But from this, it's sometimes used to define a person who leads a mob or a movement, a ringleader. Bellwether. At first it was nothing, a thought, a cough in a gale, then just a voice, then another, till none could be heard but all spoke as one. And some called it chatter, and some called it rumour. And soon came a leader who cut through the babble to what we were saying, told us why and to who, and now we were more than the sum of ourselves. Some called it bigotry, others theology. On you led till nothing could touch us, till each glance we caught looked away and no challenge came. Loyal to a fault, we pressed on in your wake. To some a messiah, to the rest a base liar, we were all on a bandwagon now, and, hazard or bluff, right to the brink, some called it hate, some called it love. Yeah, if you wanted to start by talking this through a little bit more, tell us a bit more about the poem and where, mm. where did ideas come from? Well, I think the whole collection really um, made me think about what was going on in the world. Um, as I wrote the poems over the last probably three or four years, I realised that I was engaging more and more interested in trying to find a, an oblique or elliptical way into dealing with some of the big and challenging issues the world seems to be facing, um, which is a big ask and a big task, and it wasn't going to work if it became didactic or um, politi overtly political. But I thought there were some interesting ways that I could try and address certain subjects. So, I mean, this is really addressing probably more than one subject, but it's certainly political, um, but through a, uh, a prism, really. And um, I suppose two of the things that were in my mind were populism and fundamentalism. So, whoever you define as the leader of those things, there's a certain amount of brainwashing going on, um, you know, be it Trump, be it Johnson, um, be it Orban or the, some of the more pop populist leaders around the world now. And, um, you know, we've seen in the past that um, oratory and promises and things and um, making certain things scapegoats is a very dangerous way to go. 
So that's really what lies behind the poem. I'm hesitant about trying to over-explain a poem mm. um, because it has to work as a poem and that's the ultimate test. You know, does it sound right? Uh, does it feel right? Does it have the right chimes and echoes in it? Uh, is it over-obvious? And hopefully because we're discussing it, it wasn't over-obvious. Um, but it makes you think and maybe you pick up here and there little clues as to what it's about or what it leaves enough space in there for the reader or the listener to insert themselves and for them to come up with the explanation of what it's about. I feel that that's what interests me in reading good poems so that's at least what I'm trying to do. Yeah I felt it left me thinking and it left me guessing a bit. I think at first I thought I thought Brexit, and then second, I thought oh, climate change maybe, and mm, the mm, people mm. denying that. And, All yeah. these things. Well, I, I, I wasn't explicitly thinking about Brexit because that became a very, very divisive subject. You know, in, in which in which Johnson, for example, was a very prime mover. Um, you know, the way he, he kind of appears uh, becomes very popular for what he's promising. What 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 Brexit would mean. Uh, when it happens, he, he runs for the long grass, he disappears very quickly uh, because he never expected to actually be in that position. But he enjoyed the limelight and the, the preachy side of it. Uh, and then he's found himself coming back into the frame um, because of lots of reasons that we have seen. Um, and um, yeah, but I, I don't want to tie it down to one person or anything like that. Um, I think that works. I think to me it, it seemed like loss of independent thought in a way and, yes um, yeah. yeah I mean because um, you know the word probably the closest to a hint comes in the word Messiah um, because obviously that deals brings religion into it as well as uh, but a lot of politicians are kind of seen as a inverted commas Messiah they're going to bring all the answers of course they never will you know there's a suspicion that every politician starts out with good intent and then ends up really uh, you know power an ultimate power corrupts absolutely, um, and they really become quite um, yeah over obsessed with their own power. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering um, if you thought poetry in particular was a good way or an important way to address things like this and talk about mm. them. Why? why? Uh, well, I, I think I, I was very conscious when I was younger and writing my first poems. Um, that there wasn't a lot of engagement with the world. I mean, I think the world has changed massively in the last 20 years. For a start, climate change has come right up on the agenda. We suddenly realised that things are a lot more serious than we thought. We thought that that sort of issue might take forever, and people sort of raised it, but nobody took them seriously. Um, and I don't think it, was, it felt very incumbent upon me as a young poet to do anything about right, apart from write what I knew and that's true of a lot of younger poets. Um, but the older you get, the more you think, well, actually, at least I should try and engage with the world I see. I'm going to leave it soon. Um, you know, if I say nothing about what I see going on around me, won't I regret it? But as I say, you don't want to say it in an over-obvious way because I'm not a politician, I'm not a journalist, I'm a poet. Um, I also write fiction. But um, basically in poetry, as I said earlier, the poem has to still stand up as a poem and it has to leave space for the reader and the listener. Um, so do I think poetry should engage with the world around it? Yes, absolutely. Is it easy to do? No. 
um, the, you know, I probably wrote loads of drafts of this sort of poem and a few others in the collection about other issues, you know, um, ecological issues and humanitarian issues, and tore them up because I thought they're too obvious, they're too didactic. I haven't found the right oblique way in, um, and um, so it took a lot of work. And this collection has got probably, I don't know, ten poems that I would think in some way fit that that pattern of attempting to address an issue, but I think you could read the book and maybe not even pick that up. And I'm happy with that. If people pick it up, great. And if they don't, just think, oh, that was a really nice lyrical poem. I enjoyed it, it had power, uh, it, it made me think, but they don't necessarily get what I was thinking of when I wrote it, that's perfectly fine. The book is not mine now. The book was launched yesterday, it came out yesterday, and now it's, uh, it's gone. It's the world's. It's, it's the world's <laughs> and it's everybody else's to make of it what they will. Mm. Yeah, one thing I did definitely get throughout reading the collection though, um, and you know, the title poem, Blood Rain, was this sort of huge sense of foreboding, sense of change, mm. quite a lot of morbid imagery. Mm. And I was wondering, I mean, you've sort of already hinted at it, but um, what do you think of our future? <laughs> well, am I, <laughs> yes, am I pessimistic or optimistic? I mean, I suppose in general, um, having thought about it a lot and listened to the experts talking, you know, um, you know, from David Attenborough to um, really um, expert scientists, I think, um, I'd, be, I'd lean slightly on the pessimistic side. I, I mean, feel, I feel we've gone far further towards a tipping point than we realise we have. It doesn't mean that the, the world's going to come to an end because of climate change or heating up or flooding or whatever. But I think mankind has become incredibly arrogant and we think we can do what we want and it has no effect. When, you know, whether that's technology or um, just progress, what we call progress. Quite a lot of the time I'm not absolutely sure it is. Um, I, I listened to a really fascinating interview with Robert Harris who was talking about his new book um, The Second Sleep at the Cheltenham Literature Festival and um, you know he's kind of envisaged the, clearly a catastrophe of some form happening in the world and then his book is set 800 years in the future and in his view the catastrophe was that the technology suddenly went haywire it, 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 you know we're very reliant on it and if something happens to, to make it break down you know, where would we be overnight? Um, so I think there are lots of different ways that the future, you know, could um, not be terribly bright. Um, yeah. I, I, and did I, you mean your collection to... No, I, I didn't mean it. I, no, I, I just want people to think about uh, what's around them, mm. you know, and look up and look around and not be too... not, not necessarily be too... Um, over-focused on just what your daily life is and what you're, you know, what you're doing because uh, I, I did that for a very long time and I think you know, you've really just got to be more engaged with what's going on around you. Some people obviously are in a big way. Uh, I think a lot of people aren't. You, know, you have a daily routine, you go about it, you have a lot of help with technology and you know, the things that help us but you know, question, always question, you know, is it helping us? Is it, is it as um, positive and humanitarian as people make it out to be, or is it possibly dangerous uh, in some way? I suppose that, that's really all I was looking at in the collection. 
Having said that, there are lots of poems in this collection which are just personal elegies, but I'd say that the collection is elegiac mm. in that sense. I wouldn't necessarily say morbid, um, I wouldn't really use that adjective, but it's certainly um, elegiac, yeah. And to be honest, yeah, I'd say I, a lot of the sense I got was this sort of doom and gloom, but it's, that's not true, there's a lot of beauty in it. And, um, especially your late district poem stuck in my head as well. Mm. Um, Helvellyn and yes, and heart is it? Yes, yeah. heart. Yeah, uh, there is there is some humour in this book. I mean, it, it, you have to you have to go through it to find it, but there is some humour. Um, you know, there's humour in life all the time. Thank God. You know, we've got to laugh at ourselves. We would be crying all the time. Um, yeah, mm. uh, I think. Um, a lot of there's a lot of personal poems. I mean, I've got to the age now where I, I am beginning to lose some friends, and uh, I've just you know, my dad died ten years ago. There are poems in here which were thought out. I had plenty of time to think about them and to reflect on a difficult relationship I had with my dad. Um, my mum sadly passed away just before Christmas, and uh, you know, to my disappointment, um, just too late for me to include something for her in this as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I suppose mortality is very much on my mind, but, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm still young-ish, so uh, I've, I feel I've still got a lot of uh, thinking and writing and living to do. Going off that, in terms of why you write and thinking about your readers, what, what sort of thing do you want them to take away from your work? Mm. Other than, I suppose, thinking... Uh, outside their daily lives, mm. and maybe more in a personal sense, what, what you'd like them to... Um, I suppose, why do you write for other people, is my question. Yes, I mean, uh, why does one write? This is the question you often get asked. Um, I, need to, I need to express myself and what I feel about what's going on around me. I, I think it dates back to very young years when you just, you, you, you latch onto something that you love, the sound of words, the music of words, the rhyme. I mean, this is, you know, probably from you know, primary school onwards, really. And very soon um, I, I knew I was reasonably skilled at it. I would get good marks at it. I enjoyed it. Uh, I would, and then I started, you know, at home trying to write little plays for my family to act and things. Um, so I knew I was always a writer, um, but I didn't really know what genre or how it would play out. Um, what do I want readers to take away? I suppose uh, I have to filter my writing to the point where I feel that I would enjoy reading it if I was somebody else, because you only become good as a writer by reading. By reading, you know, I, I've written novels, I've written short stories, and I've written poetry. And you only have to get, become good at it by reading and reading and reading and finding what you'd like, and then examining why do I like this so much? What what skills and what craft has this person brought to it to make it this good and then just trying to learn and educate yourself about these things and go on courses and you know I've been on Arvon courses and the usual thing what, and then I just I try not to think too hard about what people are going to take away from it I think if I if I write this as the way I think I would en enjoy reading it I think some other people will enjoy it with poetry it is to do with ideas melding with uh, rhythm and music and less full rhyme now but kind of chime rhyme or you know some poems don't have rhyme but they have a rhythm to them. What's chime rhyme? Well it's not full rhyme so uh, you know half rhyme 
So you might you might hear words that kind of echo with each other, or that you think, "Oh, there was something earlier that rhymed with that, but in fact it didn't rhyme with it, but it was an echo of it." So I think it's sometimes called half rhyme. I think I've heard half rhyme, but I like chime rhyme. Yeah, chime rhyme that. rather than full That's rhyme. The same full chime. full rhyme is is always too obvious, or you know, occasionally someone will come up with a magnificent rhyme, but. Poetry, you, most rhymes have been done in poetry, and if you can see the rhyme coming, it doesn't work, to be honest. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's the music of words. I mean, even when I write fiction, um, you know, I've, I labour over the sentences to make them have the right rhythm so that when someone reads it, they don't, they don't notice that. They, but they do flow on and they do read on because the, it has this momentum to it. Momentum, that's a good word for poems too. They've got to have a momentum. Uh, and you, you think, I want to get to the end, it's taking me somewhere I'm enjoying it, and I might not understand everything, I might not know what's around the next corner, but I'm going there, I'm going with it. I think that's really important, especially for people starting to read poetry. You don't have to understand everything, you just no. enjoy it. And um, one of my favourite poets from uh, I discovered oh, probably 20 years ago, uh, who, who, who doesn't rhyme, he's a very prose writer, an American cult poet called Charles Bukowski. Uh, he said that 90% of poetry is unreadable, but the other 10% I couldn't live without. Mm. And I feel that that's, that's always stuck in my mind, because I think you'll pick up a lot of poetry books, or you'll go to a lot of readings and you'll think, mm, I don't know, I don't think that was for me really, I, I didn't really get it, or it didn't, it didn't reach my heart or, or make my soul sing. But then when you do go to someone, my goodness, it hits you. I mean, the first time I heard Michael Longley read, I thought, oh my goodness, this is just magic. The words, the rhyme, the, the subject matter, the, the names of the places, uh, the beauty of nature, and he's got it all in, and I thought, oh, to write like that. And I think he did inspire actually one or two of the poems in this book. Right. And I suppose, can everyone be that person's 10%, different people's 10%, because it's not always going to... No, no of, person, of course it isn't. Yeah. You know, some people will like the sort of um, concrete poets or the modernist poets that I find difficult. Mm. Um, but no, luckily we are all different and that's the whole point. If you'd like to get your own copy of Blood Rain you can head to the Seren Books website. I hope you've enjoyed this episode from the Seren Poetry Festival. The music was composed by Martin White. I'd like to say a big thank you to Seren for having me over the festival weekend. If you'd like to find out more about what went on during the festival, you can visit cardiffpoetryfestival.com.